The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Scripture reading today is Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, and also Romans chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Please stand with me as I read God's word. Romans 1, starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Chapter 2, verse 1. It's chapter 12, just so you know. It's chapter 12, <laughs> verse 1. Either that or I was going to read, read after you. So, is there 12, 1 and 2. Chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, babe. So I think we're going to start something new where the scripture reader just reads whatever and Jonathan has to preach um, from, from that. Um, um, anyway... Um, Jonathan Davis, everyone. Um, I know, right? Uh, welcome, welcome back. Um, hey, it's good to be back. We hope it was a, a good sabbatical. We're, we're thankful yes. that you are, are back. I think this man has three months' worth of things to say this morning, so um, right to Southwind Park after this Brother, or right downstairs. It was very fortuitous that okay. Southwind is at 5, yeah, so it's, you have, it's right a, in the supper time. A cutoff so. point. That's so. right. Um, anyway, w- welcome back. Thanks, we're man. thankful for you. Um, we missed you. I, I believe we were served well by those who preached, um, but, but we missed you. We're thankful uh, that you were able to have some time away. Welcome yeah. back. Thanks, brother. I appreciate it. Yeah, I just reiterate what I know Charles said last week. I'm just very thankful to be able to just have been on the receiving end of the gift of uh, three months of sabbatical. Um, my hope is that at some point in time, I don't know if we'll be at a family meeting or whatnot, just to be able to tell you guys how it went and for have you guys to be able to ask questions of how it went. Um, I think I was more physically and spiritually tired than I realized, um, and so the sabbatical was very, very uh, timely. It was a sweet gift. Um, I'm just thankful for uh, other men who could step into the pulpit, men that traveled out of town, men that you know, um, giving first-go reps to men like Will Henry, who did a very excellent job. Um, I've just been blessed by that, and so uh, I just wanted to say thank you, okay? So what we're going to do is what we're going to uh, start today is a, a sermon series. If you saw it on Slack, it's going to be a little five-week sermon series before we roll back um, and pick up where we left off back in May in the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, okay? So this morning, what we're going to do is start a sermon series called Everyday Disciples, and the sermon title this morning is simply going to be called this, I Am a Worshiper. Here in a few moments, you're going to hear us talking about the different identities, the gospel-shaped identities that we have. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you've been saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us we're no longer who we used to be. We once were, but now we are. 
And the point of this five-week sermon series is to zoom in on biblical language that identify the who are we now language that identifies us as disciples who live out our discipleship in everyday life. And today we're going to zoom in on a biblical gospel-shaped identity, this identity that tells us that in Jesus we are worshipers. And so our main idea this morning is going to be this, that a worshiper, how do we describe a worshiper? What's biblical language that we can use to inform us this, of this identity? And it comes down to this, that a worshiper lives to glorify the Father by the power of the Spirit through the work of the Son. So notice that we live to glorify God the Father. We are able to live in such a way by being empowered through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us to do so. And we are able to even say, I am a worshiper all because of the work that the Lord Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. So as is uh, typical, we're going to pause, we're going to pray uh, maybe you find yourself this morning just in a place where like last week was good, like decisions were made and like blessings came and you're like, man, life, life was good. Maybe this past week found yourself where decisions were made and like you reaped the consequences of those decisions or decisions were made and those consequences made by someone else landed in your lap, stuff that you in a thousand years never would have planned for or asked for for yourself. Can I just let you know this, that you're in the right place? You're in the right place to come and rest at the feet of Jesus. Jesus isn't repulsed away from you. It's actually the very situation that you find yourself in very high or extremely low that draws Jesus to be near and dear to you. So I'm going to invite you to pray for yourself right now and to ask the Holy Spirit to make the Word of God living, to make it real. Because if all of us confess 95% of the time when we listen to the Word of God or listen to it preached, it goes in one ear and out the other. It's just very easy to do. And I'm the preacher. But the power of the Holy Spirit can tune our hearts to be recipients of what is preached. And that's what we need this morning. And so let's just do this. I'm going to just give you a couple of seconds just to pray for yourself. And you're like, Pastor Jonathan, I have no clue what you're even asking me to pray for right now. Maybe it's this. Jesus, help me to hear and see you this morning. Amen. Maybe it's as simple as that. Could be more. Might even be less. It might even be this. Jesus, help! Exclamation point. But whatever it is, take that time right now. I'll wrap us up in a little time of prayer, and then we'll dive into the text, okay? So pray, ask the Lord to make himself revealed to you this morning. Jesus, help. Make yourself known. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, we ask you in your power and might to keep the enemy from plucking the seeds of the gospel which are soon to be sown out of our hearts and minds. Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes, tune in, to be attentive, to be sober-minded, to enjoy, to come and delight in our Christ, who is very near and dear. Seasons high, situations low, and everywhere in between, Jesus, you are near and dear, and you love us. And we thank you for your salvation. Holy Spirit, grant me the power to speak clearly and to communicate clearly. But Lord, 
We know we need the Holy Spirit to make our hearts and minds receptive to the words spoken this morning. So we ask you to do so. It's in your name, King Jesus, I pray these things. Amen. Everyday worshipers, this idea, first identity, just so you know, we'll, I'll address this here in a little bit, on the seats where you guys found yourself this morning, there's these little quarter sheets that are there. Those are for you guys to grab, take home, grab a family. I'll put one on Slack later. But what you see on there is something that says identity wheel, and in that wheel you see those five gospel-shaped identities. I'll say more about this in the coming weeks, but please grab that and take it home. What you'll notice is that one of those five identities on that little quarter sheet of paper is this idea of I am a worshiper, and that's what we're going to dial into today. We're going to take these five weeks to consider the marks, the measures. Who, who am I as an everyday disciple? And then we're going to make those practical connections of like, so like, what exactly does that mean for me? right? It's easy to get up and say, hey, Greg Healy, you are a worshiper. And he'll probably nod his head and say, yeah, and he can find the Bible verse and all kinds of stuff. Like, what exactly does that mean like in real life, right? That's, that's where the rubber hits the road. Like, I'm going to work tomorrow. I've got to seek to raise kids tomorrow. Like, I'm talking to my neighbor. Like, what does my worshiper identity actually mean in real life? And that's the hope that we're seeking to uh, connect over the next couple of days or next couple of weeks as we zoom in on all these identities. So at Delta, you just need to know that hopefully this language of talking about everyday disciple isn't brand new language for you. Hopefully it's language that you've heard before, but to put a description to it, this idea of being an everyday disciple, we use this to describe someone who is a genuine Christian, someone who's truly been born again made right with God by grace through faith in Christ, they are a disciple, and this discipleship takes place in everyday life. Now, for many of us here this morning, we can stand up, we can say with absolute confidence, listen, Jonathan, I know that I am right with God. I know that I have a saving relationship with Him. I know that I have been saved by grace through faith, Christ alone, period. I get it. Grace and mercy have been given to me. I'm not trying to earn my way into heaven. I know I can't earn my way into heaven. I'm not trying to do more good things than bad to hopefully outweigh in the grand scheme of things. So when I die and I stand before God, the good outweighs. I'm not like, a, I'm, when I stand before God and God says, Jonathan, why should I let you into my kingdom. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I'm going to stand there and tell God the Father, I actually don't deserve to spend eternity with you because of my sin, but Christ in me. That's my hope of salvation. Many of us could stand up with concrete confidence and say, I know I have been saved. And because this is true of me, I am a disciple of Jesus. But with those things lingering in the air, we could simultaneously say this, and we would struggle to say this with confidence. Yes, I know I am an everyday disciple, but I struggle to say, and this is how the everydayness of my discipleship is meant to work itself out. Like, I don't know. I just don't know. Pastor Jonathan, you consistently tell us that the end-all, be-all pursuit of our Christian existence isn't merely worked out in these two hours on a Sunday morning. I get that. You tell us that it's mainly worked out in these remaining six days and 22 hours that take place in between these two-hour gospel gatherings where the Delta Jesus family meets. I get this, but here's the rub, Pastor Jonathan. I'm not sure what that every dayness of my discipleship is meant to look like in those six days and 22 hours. Well, I'm glad you're here because that is the aim that we're setting out to look at over the next couple of weeks. Listen, you just need to know this. It is possible for you to walk as an everyday disciple, a disciple, to walk as a thriving everyday disciple to walk as a thriving, spirit-empowered, Christ-abiding, God-glorifying 
everyday disciple. This is not an impossible thing that Jesus is inviting you into. It's actually fully possible to experience this kind of Christian living. Disciples who are marked by spiritual progress, disciples who are marked by growing in maturity and what it means to be a, look at your identity, will, a follower of Jesus, to be anchored in a Jesus family, to mature as a servant of others, to bear witness to Jesus, all while living as a worshiper. It is possible for those gospel-shaped identities to be not just barely surviving, but to be a fully thriving reality in your life. So this morning, we've got to begin somewhere, and here's where we're going to begin. We're going to begin with our worshiper identity, and we begin by recognizing this, that I am made to worship. That's point number one. I am made to worship. And that comes right out of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Everyday disciples are worshipers, and a worshiper lives to glorify the Father. That's what we've just been talking about. The Apostle Paul confirms this truth when he wrote his letter to the Corinthians, and he said this to the Corinthians. Listen, brothers and sisters, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And it's that glory language right there that is worship language. What we worship, we give glory to. What we give glory to, that is what we are worshiping. So when you look, male, female, created in the image of God, what the Bible speaks very clearly and reveals very clearly is this, is that every one of us were made to give glory to our Creator God. As far back as Adam and Eve, created by God in the garden, from that point forward, all of humanity was designed, if you want to speak about it in worship language, they were designed to use their life, work, speech, communication, the relationship between Adam and Eve, their children, parenting, whatever it might be, so that when people step back and look, they would go, man, these men, these women, they have a God and he is glorious and he is worthy to be worshipped. If you go into Isaiah chapter 43, verses 6 and 7, the prophet tells us that God created us for his glory. The prophet wrote, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. God made all of us in his own image so that we would reflect him to the praise of his glory. Therefore, every human being should live for the glory of God. That is the DNA, the spiritual DNA that is hardwired into you as an image bearer. Someone who bears the image of your creator. If you were to ask, well, what does that mean for me? The fact that I have been created in the image of God, it means this. You were created to worship your creator God. And by continually asking ourselves, how can I bring glory to God today? What does it look like for me to glorify my God through work? Glorify my God in my parenting. Worship Him in the way that I relate to my spouse. What does it look like for me to bring glory to God while I go about my rest? What does it look like to bring glory to God in the way that I speak with my neighbors? Any kind of thing. Just by simply asking this question, if I was created to glorify God and then to follow up and say, well, how can I glorify God? You are asking, how can I worship my God in this moment? So by asking the question, how can I bring glory to God, is one way our worship of God can move out beyond Sunday morning into everyday life. For most of us, if I were to like sneak into your house on a Sunday morning and say, today, how are you going to glorify God? Most of us would be like, well, I'm about to go to church. We're going to sing some songs and hear a sermon, and, and these are going to be things that help us understand what, what worshiping God is like. And if you were to answer that way, you would be like 1,001% correct. But for most of us, we just put a period right there and say, like, that's just what worship is. 
It's that one event for about 20 minutes where Charles is on the keys and he's leading some songs and we worship God in song for 20 minutes in that two-hour period on a Sunday morning. But what the scriptures help us to see is that we move and train ourselves to move beyond the Sunday morning is worship time only mentality into the everydayness mentality of worship by asking the simple question, how can I glorify God today? How can I glorify him at work today? How can I glorify him in this meeting right now? How can I glorify him in what I'm about to watch? How can I glorify him in what I'm listening to? How can I glorify him? How can I glorify him? How can I glorify him? Now all of a sudden worship is eking out beyond two hours on a Sunday. And it's eking out into everyday life. So you get up in the morning and whether it's the task the mundane task of consuming daily sustenance or whatever else you may do, the overarching reality is that you and I were created to do it all for the glory of God. But here's the plain truth, that every one of you are probably feeling pretty heavily right now. It's really hard to do that. Really hard to do that. Like all of us right now are probably feeling the weight of the accusation of the enemy who's pressing on you. Like if that's what worship is, according to what the word of God says, then you are an atrocious worshiper. Anyone hearing the whisperings of that from the enemy in your ear right now? I am and I'm up here preaching it. The plain truth is that we do not enter into the world living this way. And even as believers, we can struggle post-salvation in these realities. But if you want to get to the root of it, what you have to understand is this, is that the moment Adam and Eve went the route that they did in Genesis 3, and I'm going to say something about this here in a moment, the worshiping DNA hardwired into the image-bearing men and women the way God created this, when sin entered the picture in Genesis 3, this worshiping bent got real cockeyed real fast. The plain truth is this, is that we do not enter into the world living this way. Instead of hearts ready and willing to do all to the glory of God, we are actually born, physically born, entering this world, and we come into this world willing to rob God of his glory. Very happy to do so, actually. And at least one result of our glory robbing is that our worshiping hearts are hardwired to be false worshipers. See, it's not a matter of am I a worshiper or am I not a worshiper. Listen, everyone worships something. There are no non-worshippers in this world. You can find me the most atheistic, all religious, antithetical to anything that smacks of the divine. Find me that person, and I will still show you a person, person who is a full tilt worshiper. A full tilt worshiper. You see, we are natural born worshipers created by God to worship. So it's not a matter of if, but it's a matter of what. What are we worshiping? And when the object of our worship is no longer the God worthy of all worship, this is when we find ourselves guilty of false worship as false worshipers. The Bible just clearly states that this glory-robbing heart of false worship is sin. The Apostle Paul drives this truth home in Romans 3, chapter 3, verse 23. When he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So you start to see that he's stitching together this idea of who we are outside of Christ. And he's using worship language there when he uses that glory word there. And so when he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, in saying this, the Apostle Paul encapsulates the sin of all humanity by calling out our worship-robbing failure to glorify God as we ought. 
Again, God created us to be worshipers, and our worship is to be centered on him alone. But because of sin, our worship is no longer turned upward, but it's instead turned inward. And we no longer bend our worship outward to the God who loves us, created us, cares for us, sustains us, nourishes us. But we're very happy to rob that from him and say, thank you very much for that hardwired DNA to be a worshiper. And I'm actually going to turn it in on myself. And I'm going to live in such a way, act in such a way, believe in such a way, speak in such a way to where I will make sure me, myself, and I get the glory. So we rob from the Father, and we're very happy to give that glory or attempt to give that glory to ourselves. Now, the source of this glory-robbing heart finds its beginning in the Garden of Eden. I just referenced that a couple of minutes ago. Adam and Eve, if you read Genesis 1 and 2, what were they made to do? They were made to extol their creator, to give praise to him, to exalt his name, to live in such a way where he would be seen as the one who is high, exalted, lifted up, worthy to be pursued, and to enjoy him with all their, with all their being. But then comes that moment in Genesis 3 when, to use Romans 1 language, Adam, Eve exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And the moment that they believed the serpentine lie that God cannot be trusted Their sin of rebellion corrupted everything. In that moment, their worship was redirected from true glory-giving worship of the Creator to false glory-robbing worship of creation. Now, you notice that text that Tara read this morning in Romans 1. If you flash forward to that, Paul takes these two realities, stitches them right together, and he explains to the Christians in Rome about how sin-dead sinners are false worshipers. That's the route that he goes. He says, let me show you the true nature of how dead we are in sin, and let me explain it to you. Could have gone any number of roads, but he says, I'm going to explain it to you in this language, worshiping language. So you go to chapter 1, Romans, verse 18, and it begins like this, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. How do we see this unrighteousness? Well, we see it by the way they want to suppress the truth. What truth? This truth, for what can be known about God, is very plain. It's plain because God has shown it to them. Verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely this attribute, his eternal power, and this attribute, the divine nature of who God is, they have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So, Paul says plainly, they are without excuse. Verse 21, for although they knew God, now notice he's going to start leaning in really heavily onto worship-type language. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him. Honoring God is worship kind of language. They did not give thanks to him. The thanksgiving that flows from a heart to a God worthy of being the recipient of all thanksgiving, that's worship language. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. And exchanged the glory, worship language, of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. Images resembling birds, animals, creeping things. So notice their creation hardwiredness to be a worshiper is no longer going outward and upward to God, but it's actually being bent downward to created things. Verse 24, therefore, because of this false worship exchange, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and very blatant worship language, worshiped 
and served the creature rather than the creator. So just notice, I, I, I read that so that you would just see, biblically speaking, what Paul is saying here. The sin-dead nature of men and women who come out of the womb, dead in sin, this is a worship problem, he says. That's one way we can describe it. So one of the ways to describe the universal plight of humanity is to do so through the lens of worship. Sin is a disease, and it's a universal disease that compels and propels men and women to be false worshipers. This is why sin must be destroyed. Hearts dead in sin are bent away from true worship to false worship, revealing just how desperately evil our hearts really are. But the good news of God is that he can change all this. God is in the business of changing false worshipers into true worshipers. We need someone who can transform us from the inside out. Someone who can convert our glory-robbing hearts into glory-giving hearts. Someone who can turn our false worship into true worship. And according to the scriptures, praise be to God that someone has a name and his name is Jesus. Jesus is in the business of drawing near to false worshipers, saving us and changing us, not saying, now just don't go off and worship anything, but redeeming our worshiping DNA to be directed and tilted solely to the Father, Son, and the Spirit. For through the work which the Son accomplished on the cross, guess what? False worshipers can be changed into true worshipers. And that's point number three, true worshipers. That comes out of not Romans 2, 1 and 2, but 12, 1 and 2. True worshipers. Remember, everyday disciples are worshipers who live to glorify the Father by the power of the Spirit through the work of the Son. So when the Holy Spirit convicts a person of sin, when the Holy Spirit shows up in your life and convicts you, because of my sin, I am not right with God. Because I am not right with God, I deserve to stand before holy God and the judgment I deserve to get is justice for my sin. Jesus says very clearly in John 16 that the work of the Holy Spirit in the world is to move in the hearts and the lives of people far from God and he convicts them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. It's true that I'm a sinner, that I'm not right with God, and if I'm not right with God, the judgment I deserve is eternal separation from a holy God. And when the Holy Spirit convicts a person of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and then leads them to repent of that sin and believe in the Son for eternal life, guess what? The Scriptures say very clearly this person becomes a brand new creation. Their old glory-robbing heart of false worship passes away, and by the power of the Spirit through the work of the Son, a new glory-giving heart made for true worship has come. In a very real sense, as a spiritual heart transplant, if you want to put it in that kind of language. Now, does that mean with new hearts we never struggle? Most of us here this morning know very real, as real, genuine, born-again Christians, the struggle is real. But what is also true about you and your struggle is this. I have a new heart. I am a new creation. God has declared to me, I have made you a true worshiper because of the repentance and faith, the trust that you have in my son to save a sinner like yourself. Listen, the cross stands as the great evidence of God's love for us. And when we experience this love, it moves us to worship the one who saved us. So empowered by the Spirit, it is now possible for us, Romans 12, to present our bodies as, worship language, a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, which is our worship language, spiritual worship. So just think of what this means for an everyday disciple. If these things are true, when we stitch them all together, what we can say is this. With the full weight of our Trinitarian God leveraged on our behalf. Because if a worshiper lives to glorify the Father, 
by the power of the Spirit through the work of the Son. So here's the Father drawing us to Himself, the Son accomplishing what needed to be done on the cross so that sinners could be made right, the Holy Spirit opening our eyes to see our need for the Savior to make us right with the Father, Trinitarian, God, Son, Spirit, leveraged on our behalf, guess what? You can walk out in the everydayness of your life a thriving worshiper. It is possible for you to do. I'm not saying it's going to be perfect, but it is possible. I think most of us struggle with this. Man, like, it feels very imperfect, therefore I don't believe it to be possible at all. By the power of the Spirit, it is possible to live as a living sacrifice and to worship God in a thriving way. Notice it's not because we're great. It's not because we worship perfectly. But it's because even when our worship falters in the crucible of daily living, listen, I get it. The world we live in, sin, flesh, devil wage war against the citizens of Christ's kingdom putting the full force of hell's energy behind tempting kingdom citizens away from worshiping as they were designed to it's a real war that you live in where will your worship go today the enemy has a scheme to make sure your worship does not go to where it belongs and belongs alone. And so in the crucible of daily living, even when our worship falters, we have promises in the scripture, promises like 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, for instance, that tell us that as we behold the glory of the Lord, guess what? You are being transformed into Christ's likeness from one degree of glory to the next. What is Paul saying here? He's saying this. Christian, do you want to look more like Jesus today? Spirit of God within you raises his head up and then he yeah. Yeah, I want to look more like Jesus today. As a daddy, I want to look more like Jesus. As a mommy, more like Jesus. As a child, more like Jesus. As a coworker, more like Jesus. As a boss, a manager, a supervisor, more like Jesus. As a neighbor, more like Jesus. In my thought life, more like Jesus. And what I see, more like Jesus. In my actions, more like Jesus. And what I think on, more like Jesus. In my emotions, more like Jesus. Yes, Apostle Paul, I want to be transformed into Christ's likeness from one degree of glory to the next. I understand it's going to be incremental. It's not going, I'm not going to go from zero to 60 like in, in the next five minutes, but I understand that I, I can be transformed into Christ's likeness today in these areas. The question is how Paul says this, behold the glory of the Lord. I propose to you, behold the glory of the Lord is an invitation to worship. Gaze upon his beauty. Get into the word. Listen to a song that tunes your heart to praise. Gather with other Christians. Come and have your soul filled with gospel gasoline with the Jesus family on a Sunday morning. There's tons of other ways, but as we behold the glory, because the truth is this, you will become what you behold. And if you're beholding everything but the glory, then your worshiping heart will worship, but not in a way that gives glory, but robs glory. So if you're like, uh, okay, what? Tomorrow, get up and just ask Jesus this, headless off the pillow, Jesus, help me to behold you today. That's you asking Jesus to help you worship today, okay? The trials and the troubles of daily living have dampened your ability to see how you can glorify the Father in everyday worship. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse, 3, chapter 3, verse 18, 
and ask the Father by the Spirit to direct your worshiping hearts to behold the Son. And then guess what? Rest. Rest. Many of us work ourselves into a spiritual lather because the change we want to see does not happen like this. We pray a half-hearted microwave prayer and expect Jesus to change us dramatically within the next five seconds. And then when we don't see that change happen as fast as we want, we draw the conclusion, well, Christ must not care. He didn't hear my prayer. Surely this whole worship thing that Pastor Jonathan talks about is not a worthy pursuit. But ask the Father by the power of the Spirit to direct your worshiping heart and step back and rest. Rest in what? Rest in the fact that through the work of Jesus on the cross, he's transformed you. Rest in the fact that you are now a true worshiper. Rest in the fact that his heart is for you. He is not against you. Rest in his absolute ability to make your every breath a hallelujah and your every exhale an amen of true worship in everyday life. Rest. Rest. Coming from the man who's been able to experience a microscopic thumbnail scratch of this. Rest in your Savior. He's not against you in Christ. Rest in him. Well, this all sounds great, Pastor Jonathan, but it still still feels like it's woo, way up there in the abstract. Let me just stitch this together. This is the practical part, okay? So let's point out what this could look like for you as, as an everyday worshiper. If you're like, man, that sounds great, and my heart sort of stirred here Sunday morning, but like, what does this mean for me in the next six days and 22 hours? Here's how it begins. Just, just take note of this. This is my attempt to try to bring what we've been talking about down to like a practical, like I've got work at 8 a.m. on a Monday morning kind of practicality, okay? So it begins by seeing this, that our everyday lives are lives of continuing worship. We have to recognize that. And our continuing worship now has two contexts. And the context that our worshiping heart finds itself in are this, gathered on a Sunday morning and scattered out into those six days and 22 hours, Okay. So notice, not only do we worship gathered with God's people in community, like today, this morning, on a Sunday morning, but notice that as we scatter out into the world, our worshiping hearts, you could say, go with us, right? We don't leave our worshiping heart here on Sunday morning to pick it back up again next week on August the 13th. Our worshiping heart very literally travels with us back out the door. And so notice that it's this idea of the way we gather on a Sunday morning, we have fought as your pastors, as an elder team, to model the way we worship on a Sunday morning so that you can carry the very gospel-shaped liturgy that we experience every Sunday as a gathered Jesus family, and you can carry it with you right out into the next six days and 22 hours and model what we experience on a Sunday morning in everyday life. You see, with intentionality, your pastors have based the order of our Sunday gathering on the story of the gospel. If you want to think about the gospel, you can think of it like this. God, man, Christ response. God is holy, can have nothing to do with sin. Man is a sinner and thus is separated from God. We need someone who can reconcile God and man, Jesus is the answer. He's the mediator who can reconcile God and man. And how do we respond to that truth? Gospel, four-word nutshell, God, man, Christ response. Our liturgy on a Sunday morning models the gospel in that way. We begin our service with a call to worship and a prayer of adoration to remind ourselves that our holy God has spoken and we are to respond. We don't read scripture at the very beginning and pray a prayer of worship to God because we're just trying to kill five minutes. Like I only get a paycheck if we go more than an hour and a half. So it's like Brady, you know, like squeeze out that prayer a little bit longer. We need to hit the threshold so I can get some money. Like that's not what we're doing. We're modeling the gospel there. God is holy. He has spoken. We're here to respond. And then we sing some songs that worship God. But then notice we come to the place that because man is sinful, we make corporate confession of our sin in a direct response to the holiness of God. 
So when we come to the prayer of confession time in our Sunday morning, what do we do? And again, we're not trying to kill time, but we're recognizing if God is holy and God is worthy to be pursued and God is to have nothing to do with sin, like that sort of presents a problem. Because I sinned a lot in the past six days and 22 hours. So what is my hope? My hope begins with the song kind of song that we just got introduced to us. If we come and confess, repent and confess sin, guess what? We find a father who is faithful to forgive, the very name of the song. So we sing songs like that. We're not just picking a random CCM kind of stuff, like the top ten tunes are the best play. Like We are going through very specific ways so that way we can find songs that will plant those kinds of truths into our lives so we can learn how to be confessors of sin. And once we see our sin in light of God's holiness, guess what? We naturally long for a Savior, which is why we turn to that word of assurance. The word of assurance is there to remind us that Jesus has come to seek and to save the lost. It would be a very dismal liturgical gathering if we came to go, God, you're holy. Man, we're really awful. We're big, fat sinners. Hey, have a nice week. See you guys. And we turn to the Savior, the word of assurance. We pray to Jesus during our family prayer time. We pray or we listen to the words of Christ when we preach. And then we call for a response of obedience. That's what the Lord's Supper is. That's what the benediction is. So that's the gospel-shaped liturgy on a Sunday morning but I say this to you now just because like no one ever helped me make sense of it until like way, way later in life. No one ever helped me connect how my Christian experience of worship on a Sunday morning can be mirrored in the six days and 22 hours. This is my best attempt right now to try to give you no excuse. You understand what I'm saying right now? Because if you're like me growing up, you're like, yeah, that all makes sense. I get it, man. We see the stuff up on the screen, but you don't quite see how our two hours of gospel-shaped worship on a Sunday morning has anything to do with work, kids, marriage, etc., etc. So here's it is. Notice this. Gospel-shaped liturgy isn't just for Sunday mornings. It's for everyday life. The temptation every one of us faces is the temptation to compartmentalize those lives to two hours. But the way an everyday disciple fights this temptation is with the awareness that tomorrow morning you can worship in a gospel-shaped way just like you did on Sunday with your Jesus family. You get up for breakfast. You're sitting there at the table. you got a hat bowl of soggy Cheerios and a cold cup of coffee. But you can start off your day with a call to worship. Why not? Your head lifts up off the pillow. How do we do a call of worship? We usually zoom in on a verse or two and then we pray a prayer of adoration. So maybe it's just getting into the rhythm this coming week saying this, when my head lifts up off the pillow, I will begin my day with a call to worship. Jesus, you just granted me another day that I was not guaranteed to have. You hold my life in your hands. Praise be to God. You just replicated gospel-shaped liturgy into your Monday morning with a call to worship and a prayer of adoration, just like we do on Sunday mornings. Maybe the morning commute on your way to work is a call to confession. Maybe people are swerving in and out of lanes. Maybe they're cutting you off. Maybe you know you're going in to that one particular email that you have to answer from that highly annoying employee and impatience and frustration are just boiling there at the tipping point waiting to explode. Maybe the morning commute is the confession. Jesus, I know how I want to act towards employee X and it is not like you. I'm confessing the sin of anger right now. Will you help me reflect you with patience? It's a fruit of the Spirit. Help me. 
Maybe the morning commute is an opportunity to pray like we do with our Jesus family, but you just replicate it by yourself. You're listening to the radio in and you just hear the news of a broken world and so you spend time praying for a broken world. A conversation between spouses becomes an opportunity to give a word of assurance one to another of the forgiveness that's found in Jesus Christ alone. Interactions with a co-worker can become moments where we get to preach and proclaim the saving power of Jesus. And maybe it's those last moments before the household goes to sleep. It becomes an occasion for a benediction. A benediction is a fancy church word that just means good word and so you end on a good word thank you Jesus for today you sustained me like I asked you to this morning amen you see gathered worship with your Jesus family is meant to inform how you can worship scattered in everyday life. Are you going to leave today and do it perfectly? You are not. So don't set yourself up for that kind of failure. But maybe tomorrow morning or maybe this week is just this. Jesus, will you give me a heart that wants to start off my day with a call to worship and then step back and rest and watch how Jesus takes your true worshiping heart and begins to mature it and grow into a thriving everyday worshiping heart as you lean and rest in him. Amen? Makes sense. If you've got questions, please come help me down. I'd love to try to make the practical a little bit more real, okay? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for the work that you do in our hearts and lives. Thank you, Jesus, that you are in the business of saving false worshipers. Thank you, Jesus, that you are in the business of taking false worshipers and transforming them into true worshipers. So, Lord Jesus, as we seek to walk into the next six days and 22 hours, Lord, will you just give us glimpses, glances of what this could look like? For some of us, maybe it's confession. For some of us, maybe it's assurance, a word of assurance. For some of us, maybe it's that call to worship or that word of benediction after the end of a hard day, but Lord, would you just help us to see what we get to experience as a Jesus family on a Sunday morning? It can be experienced day in and day out through the week. Jesus, it's in your name I ask you to do these things in the hearts and lives of your people. Amen.